we will be discussing difficult subject matter related to abuse. Listener discretion is advised. I was recently talking with a friend about challenges that she's having with her boss. She mentioned that she's feeling overworked and underappreciated. When she's called or emailed on evenings and weekends, she's expected to respond. She has no personal life and no workplace boundaries. Mind you, she doesn't get paid more for working outside the typical 9 to 5 hours. It's just expected of everyone. These are now the workplace norms. Listening to her stories was ridiculous. We live in a country with specific workplace laws designed to protect us from workplaces and employers like this, but her employer was flouting those laws, and in our discussions as friends, we didn't really know where to start to help her to complain. Our friend said she needed the job, she had financial responsibilities, and would just suck it up. I'm sure you've also heard similar stories of workplaces that don't necessarily follow the letter of the law when it comes to labor practices. But for most Canadians, we have a safety net. Maybe it's friends or family who can help us find another job or help us financially. We can search for different employment. We can take legal action against our workplaces. We have a social security system and healthcare. There are a significant number of people in Canada, though, who have nowhere to turn when employers begin taking advantage of them. Today we're talking about Canada's temporary migrant labor force, and we're going to focus on the agriculture industry. Canada depends on thousands of migrant workers every year to support its economy. For example, in 2014, migrant farm workers made up 12% of Canada's agriculture workforce. A growing labor shortage is projected to increase in the coming years, with a study by the Conference Board of Canada projecting 113,800 unfilled jobs by 2025. However, there's often documented cases of abuse and rights infringement due to the isolation of workers and their temporary status. The kind of abuse and rights infringement include inadequate housing, poor access to health care, the inability to collectively bargain, being separated from their family, illegal recruitment fees, and cases of violence and sexual abuse. Low-wage migrant workers are restricted to working for a single employer, which, as you can imagine, creates a power imbalance and an environment that allows for workplace exploitation. Migrant workers' ability to remain in Canada depends on maintaining their employer's favor. In addition to abuse, a really shady ecosystem has developed that subjects workers to predatory recruitment fees and even surveillance by recruiters. They're pressured to continue working, even in abusive conditions, to pay back recruiters. In Canada, there exist two immigration programs for temporary workers. One is the International Mobility Program, and the second is the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. The Temporary Foreign Worker Program is regulated by the federal government, and it allows employers to hire foreign nationals on a temporary basis to fill labor force gaps. Each year, there's approximately 85,000 low-wage migrant workers coming to Canada under this temporary foreign worker program. Most Canadian provinces receive migrant workers through this program, but the majority are working in Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia. 
They are permitted to stay in Canada for a maximum of eight months between January 1st and December 15th of the year they're hired for. There's no limit on the number of years for which workers can return to Canada, and many do return for many years. In one study, 57% of Mexican workers returned for six years or more, and 22% returned for more than 10 years. And migrant workers aren't just in the agriculture industry. They work in our health care. They work in in-home care. They work in food processing, cleaning, delivery, construction, and more. Now, in our conversations about migrant workers, we're going to be talking about the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. So how did we get here? I thought we lived in a civilized country where human rights were respected, minus the gaps in rights that we've talked about in past episodes. Professor Faye Faraday, a lawyer and assistant professor at York University, highlights how institutionalized racism shaped Canada's temporary labor migration program from the very beginning. From the late 19th century until the Second World War, Canada had primarily imported care workers from England and Scotland to live and work in employers' home. They arrived with permanent status as British subjects, and eventually it became so hard to recruit white women care workers when economic options expanded for them. So this is when the first agreement was developed with Jamaica and Barbados called the Caribbean Domestic Scheme in 1955 to 1967. This program allowed a limited number of black women to immigrate to Canada while being paid $150 less per month than white peers. They risked being deported if they were deemed undesirable for any reason by an employer. Canada's immigration laws have historically imposed really explicit restrictions based on race. To Canada, Caribbean nurses were admitted on the basis of their qualification and only as in quotes, cases of exceptional merit, unlike white nurses who were admitted on the basis of general admissibility. To enter as a permanent settler, Caribbean nurses had to have qualifications that far exceeded white nurses. The Seasonal Agriculture Worker Program was created in 1966 as a response to Ontario farmers demanding access to seasonal labor from the Caribbean as sources of imported labor from Europe became less available. The logic for this was to grant Canadian industries access to temporary migrant labor from the Caribbean while avoiding the increase of black immigration to Canada. And I should say, contemporary programs have expanded, but the majority of workers are still black and brown people from the global south. Under the Seasonal Agriculture Workers Program, Migrant workers cannot seek employment outside their work contract, and they cannot apply for permanent resident status. There's another program called the Live in Care program, and it's been dominated by caregivers from the Philippines. It was introduced due to a lack of live-in caregivers in Canada. But unlike the Seasonal Agriculture Workers Program, the Live in Care program does allow eventually for workers to apply for permanent resident status in Canada after completing 24 months of paid employment within a period of four years. So there is actually a pathway to permanent residency with that program. Unfortunately, to date, Canada has not signed and ratified the United Nations International Convention on the Protection of the Rights of All Migrant Workers and Members of Their Families. 
It is the only international instrument specifically drafted to protect the rights of migrant workers, and we haven't ratified it. It is also the least ratified treaty among all the major human rights treaties. As of 2017, only 51 countries had ratified it. So as we talked about, unfortunately, with the programs that we currently have, it really facilitates an environment that allows human rights abuses to flourish. Migrant workers are protected under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and provincial laws, but there is a gap in enforcement of protection, and abuse has been documented in all programs. Often, racism, discrimination, and dubious contracts prevent workers from forming outside relationships, and this ensures that their behavior is policed. Migrant workers can experience abuse at the hands of third-party recruiters as well, who might charge thousands of dollars for various applications or assistance throughout the process. Mind you, this is an illegal practice in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Nova Scotia. Migrant workers, especially temporary farm workers, have long pushed for the right to unionize. In the Fraser v. Ontario lawsuit, the Supreme Court ruled that Section 2D of the Charter of Rights and Freedom does not require labor statutes to incorporate a particular model of collective bargaining when it comes to temporary foreign workers. Essentially, it's denying migrant workers statutory labor rights protection in Ontario. It's also really common for workers to be repatriated back to their home countries when they've been hurt on the job or experience illness that prevents them from working. This is often done without the option to appeal the repatriation. Between 2001 and 2011, 787 medical repatriations occurred among the 170,000 migrant farm workers in Ontario. Of these medical repatriations, 41% were due to medical or surgical reasons, and 25% were due to external injuries. Although migrant workers pay federal and provincial taxes, their access to social programs are restricted. They have difficulty accessing services in the first place, partly due to the long work hours that they have, lack of transportation, social isolation, language, and restrictions from leaving their work environment. So unfortunately, if a migrant gets hurt on the job, sometimes the employer just puts them on a plane and sends them home instead of getting them medical help. Did you know we are always looking for community organizations to collaborate with? If you have any kind of events that you want to share out on this podcast or through our social media, please feel free to get in touch and we'd be happy to do that. You can contact us through email, no nonsense podcast at gmail.com, K N O W. Also linked in the show notes. We can't wait to hear more from you. COVID has exacerbated all of life's difficulties, and this could not be more true for migrant workers in Canada. Migrant rights in Canada has always been a hot button issue. But the COVID-19 pandemic brought more of the shocking conditions they live with to light. While many of us were forced to stay home and others privileged to be able to work from home, thousands of migrant workers were working on farms across this country. They were working in factories and in healthcare as essential workers who kept our society going. They put food on our tables, products on our shelves, they take care of our elderly, and they manufacture our goods, but they don't get the recognition they deserve. 
In an article for The Conversation, Professor Faye Faraday notes that six weeks into the pandemic, complaints from over 1,100 migrant farm workers were made. These complaints identified widespread wage theft, inadequate housing, lack of PPE, inadequate food, coercive restrictions on workers' movements, intimidation, surveillance, and heightened racism. In 2020, 12% of migrant farm workers tested positive for COVID-19 in Ontario. Some in-home care workers reported similar experiences, including being overworked, loss of immigration status, and even being denied to leave their employer's house. As a response, in August 2020, the federal government created what it called a pathway to permanent residency for asylum claimants who worked on the front lines of healthcare during the pandemic. But this excluded many of the migrant and undocumented workers on the front line. There are even more hurdles when we talk about those in Canada working as undocumented workers. These are workers who may have come through tourist visas but are actually working, or they were migrant laborers who came legally but were supposed to return to their country, and the fear of being deported forces them to keep working in bad conditions. Undocumented migrant workers in Leamington, Ontario, for example, are having to balance concerns of COVID-19 with fears that the act of getting tested may get them deported. Southern Ontario had some of the worst outbreaks and some of the worst outbreaks for migrant workers. In Leamington, Ontario, an outbreak there and parts of Windsor, Essex County had sickened nearly 1,000 migrant farm workers and three of them died. As reported by the CBC, One was a 43-year-old man who came to Canada from Guatemala a year ago under a government program, but his permit had lapsed and he continued to work, moving from farm to farm as a temporary hired hand and sending his wages home to support his wife and 11 children. Another unfortunate story is that of Rogelio Muñez Santos, a 24-year-old man from Chiapas, Mexico, who came to Canada on a tourist visa in February. His family told Mexican media outlets that he had found a Spanish-language post on a Facebook page in Toronto offering farm jobs paying $13 an hour for a 70-hour week. So he arrived in Leamington, Ontario in early April. He ended up living in a local motel that was arranged by a recruiter and lived there with four other men sharing two beds and a bathroom. This was not cheap, by the way. It cost them $600 each per month to live in this motel, and it was deducted from their pay. The outbreaks among migrant workers is due to the working and living conditions that they're subjected to, but some Canadians don't see it this way. Migrant workers are being villainized for coming to Canada in the first place, with this inaccurate perception that they're bringing COVID to Canada. Every year, tens of thousands of temporary migrant workers come from Mexico, the Caribbean, and South America. But due to COVID-19, the number of approved positions by the Seasonal Agriculture Worker Program has been reduced. This is putting a strain, of course, on our agricultural system in Canada. When the COVID-19 pandemic was declared in March 2020, temporary migrant agriculture workers and farm owners faced a lot of pressure to ensure that there wouldn't be a disruption in the food supply chain. Although many of us were staying home, food still needed to be produced. 
This, of course, resulted in an increase in work demands for temporary migrant workers and led to multiple reports of abuse happening. There's been reports of workers working 15-hour days, seven days a week straight, to make up for these shortages. There's been reported threats from employers to withhold their wages if specific production targets are not met. And in all reported cases, workers were not compensated with overtime pay. Even before the pandemic, injuries for temporary migrant workers was really high. The agriculture industry has always been known to be dangerous. Between 1990 and 2000, there were 1,256 agriculture-related fatalities and over 15,000 hospitalizations. There could be a lot of factors as uh, the source for increased injuries on a- in agriculture, such as the long hours of strenuous work without rest, exposure to chemicals, airborne dust and, and animal-borne diseases, lack of adequate protective equipment, safety training or sanitation facilities, and the fear of reporting accidents and injuries. COVID also exacerbated the living conditions for migrant workers. There has been decades of research that have documented the substandard living conditions on farms. The kind of issues that have been reported include overcrowding, lack of access to drinkable water, lack of access to adequate food storage, inadequate sanitation facilities, and even the presence of animals and pest infestations. There is no national standard set up on what is deemed acceptable housing. This is taken on a municipal-by-municipal basis. Understandably, after everything we've discussed, there are psychological difficulties for migrant workers. They are at a greater risk for developing various mental health disorders. Studies have also linked psychological difficulties to stressors such as social isolation, loneliness, dangerous work, lack of access to adequate rest, exploitative conditions, unsanitary housing, poor working relations, and more. And the Seasonal Agriculture Worker Program, for example, doesn't allow for visitors' visas or work permits for family members. So for the Seasonal Agriculture Workers, 95% of whom have children, by the way, don't get to see their family for up to eight months out of the year, sometimes for decades in a row. And of course, all of our mental health has gotten worse during the pandemic. You can imagine how much worse it's gotten for temporary migrant workers. When talking about COVID, it has really made us clearly see the need for our healthcare system. Unfortunately, when it comes to access to healthcare, we have a long way to go for our temporary migrant workers they face much greater barriers to accessing healthcare. An Ontario study, for example, found that almost 20% of surveyed migrant workers did not have a health card and that 55% of them worked despite illness or injury for fear of telling their employer and being sent home. For some migrant workers, they lack the knowledge on how to navigate and to use our healthcare and compensation systems, When you put this in combination with language barriers and, for some, relatively limited literacy, you can imagine how difficult these barriers are to overcome. So, underutilization of health services is a big problem. Many vulnerabilities were heightened during the pandemic. For example, many workers were unable to register for provincial healthcare coverage despite eligibility because government offices were closed. 
many were unable to access primary care due to the decision of health centers to limit services to existing clients, particularly for non-COVID-19 related concerns. And many others faced barriers in language and access to technology that prevented them from using telemedicine health services. So with everything that I've mentioned, you might be wondering, what could we do about migrant workers' rights? Some of the statistics and information I shared might feel depressing and hopeless, but there are advocates fighting for change in this system. Migrant workers have long protested for better working conditions and permanent status for all under the hashtag status for all. In response to the persistent critique of Canada's temporary migrant labor programs, in 2016, a federal standing committee report heard evidence from workers, industry representatives, community organizations, and research on the use and impact of migrant labor in Canada. A number of recommendations were made from the report, including to develop policies to better prevent the use of temporary foreign workers to fill permanent labor shortages, to take immediate steps to remove the requirement for employer-specific work permits, so the permits that tie migrant workers to one employer, the provision of multiple entry work permits to seasonal migrant workers, a review of the permanent resident policy with a view to facilitating access to permanent residency in Canada for migrant workers who have integrated into Canadian society and are filling a permanent labour need, and improvement of employer monitoring and compliance regimes, including information sharing with provinces and the establishment of a dispute resolution mechanism for migrant workers. Two years after the report was made, the federal government pledged $198 million to employer compliance and inspections over five years, and $33 million per year after that to fund compliance and employer inspections. Most importantly, in the fight for change in the agriculture and migrant worker programs and systems are organizations and advocates who tirelessly work to ensure that migrant laborers know their rights, understand the systems and processes that they can access, whether it's healthcare, whether it's legal recourse, immigration, and community members and community organizations, ensuring that migrants have a sense of community in Canada to really support them with this mental health and like loneliness that a lot of them can feel. These are the unsung heroes of the work that is taking place for change when it comes to migrant workers, and so we definitely applaud them. We have a list of organizations you can take a look at whose work is incredible, and if you can, and if you can, if you're able to support them, either financially or in distributing their communication, attending their events, I think they would be more than happy to get the support. If you're like me, you don't often think about where your food comes from, who picks and packages it, but know that there are thousands of hours of labor that go into it, much of it done by people not from here, who are hundreds of kilometers from home. People doing very important work in our communities are underserved and underappreciated, and we need to do a better job of taking care of those who are taking care of us. Beverly Osazua is our researcher. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. I'm your host, Nuri Yunus. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next week. Bye.